And uh, we will have new intros soon. We recorded new intros with Corey. I, uh, I still have to sit down and produce them because uh, I have not had time as I was, uh, you know, my accident. We talked about my, uh, my hit and run thing, been dealing with all that stuff. And then uh, I had to uh, moderate some events at Colcoa, which you never want me to talk about. And uh, you, you What went, did you do at Colco? I moderated the uh, panel with the uh, delegation uh, of filmmakers. What? The, uh, the, 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 the Meet the delegation, the people who are in town for the, uh, you know, the directors and actors and all of that. And that was very nice. And then I also moderated a uh, Q&A with Jean-Paul Rapneau, who just directed his first film in like, uh, what, like 10 years or something, whatever it was, since uh, Bon Voyage. Anyway, he's only made eight films in uh, 51 years. But they're all great, and uh, we, they showed his first film, his very first film, with uh, Catherine Deneuve and uh, Philippe Noiret, and it's absolutely fantastic. It's a wonderful comedy, and we had a great Q&A. He was, he was lovely. Fantastic. Anyway. Uh, okay, so you'd rather talk about that and not no, talk not really. about how I went to go see Bruce Springsteen at Barclays Center the other night? You did, I'm assuming it was not in North Carolina. It was not. Okay. Otherwise, I couldn't have gone to the bathroom. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so you went and saw Springsteen. Yes. And did you have a nice Passover uh, weekend? You did, you, you did the whole New York spiel. I, I did the first and second night of Passover with, yeah. with my favorite Passover prayer. Yeah. It's called Skip a Little, Skip a Little. When you, gotta read, <laughs> read, when you read the books, you know, the Haggadah, which, is, sure. which retells the story of Passover. That's of part course. of the, the ceremony, the tradition exactly. of Passover, which is that the entire table is bored out of their wits reading the story. Yeah. Uh, you know, our favorite uh, uh, prayer is skip a little, hoping we get to the damn food. Got so we did it. that. And then I actually had extended my trip for a day because it was the only day that the Mets were playing in town. So I go on StubHub and I try to find a ticket. You know, how much money can I spend, afford on a ticket to see the Mets? So I'm yeah. on StubHub. Right. Looking to see what uh, uh, Met tickets are available, Met seats. Rummaging around. And StubHub also tells you stuff that's going on about town other than, other than what you're looking for. And they mention, happen to mention, a little act named Bruce Springsteen in the E Street Band playing at the Barclays Center. And I said, OMG. Yeah. WTF. <laughs> SOS. BFD. I said them all. Yeah. I said, I now have new plans. Mm-hmm. And I went to go see Springsteen. And I paid an F load of money. Did you? But. It was worth it. Worth every penny. Yeah. Basically front row, but about 25 yards off the side. Yeah. It was, literally, it was the first concert I had ever gone to where the musicians were actual full-sized people, <laughs> not dots. Because I can only afford dots. Yeah. This time, because I said, screw it, I decided to afford real people. Nice. So I got real people. He played for uh, over three and a half hours, nonstop. This three and a half hours without an, an, an intermission. Sure. He just goes. Uh, 36 songs. One of them, one of the songs he played will uh, segue into our next topic because one of the songs he played was Purple Rain, which he played, obviously, as a tribute to Prince, who uh, died last week. You know, that that was just the, of all the crazy celebrity and high-profile deaths that 2016 has given us, and they just keep coming day after day, and, you know, we're all losing track of them, but... 
that's the one that just hit, I think, everybody like a bombshell. I mean, suddenly every single station on the radio was playing Prince tributes, and you know, everyone who was giving a concert anywhere suddenly was playing. Did Gilmore just did something? Oh yeah, I mean, everybody. Uh, they're they're all doing their versions of Purple Rain, and it's 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 just. You know, it's the one we didn't expect because Prince was Prince is not that guy. You know. Well, he's also he's also a very secretive man. He's very secretive, but look, I mean, he, you know, he, he, at least for the last ten years, deeply religious, vegan, uh, health oriented. You know, all this kind of stuff. I mean, uh, his well, here's the thing with Prince. I, I have two things to say on that. One is that he was on painkillers for his hip. Yes, that which, definitely. But also the splits. It, wouldn't that be? I mean, it, whether directly or indirectly, the splits on stage. Conceivably, could have been what wound up killing him. True, you, you we know? don't know. And then, but here's the thing: there's also uh, you know darker uh, forces sure. possibly at work. Sure. Rumor is he 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 had the high five. Yeah, I he don't know what that is. HIV. Yeah, the high. Oh, five. the high five. <laughs> Get well, HIV high five. Yeah, well, yeah. Rumor is he might have had the high five. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is that I you know what's interesting about Prince is that is that he's this guy who seems so pure in terms of like mm-hmm. what he puts into his body and just his artistic well, output. You know, but I my mean, sense is that I don't really know. No one really knows how pure he was. I'm not saying he was he was a heroin you, addict. Have you heard the have you have you watched the the Kevin Smith thing about Kevin Smith has a whole like oh, half fin- hour. It's yes, hysterical. It's fantastic about the time where, where Prince basically recruits him to make a documentary. He has no clue how to make, and he does it all without pay. And and then it turns out to be this like like Prince will come in and he'll just start sermonizing to these uh, these focus groups and preaching to them and testifying to them. I mean, it's hysterical. And, and, and Prince doesn't thank him at the end when it all falls apart. <laughs> Kevin Smith is like, you should look this up on YouTube. It is, Kevin it is Smith great. is like, look, man, I'm all about gratitude. Just yeah. just say. Thank you. Sorry it didn't work out. It's all good. Thank you. Didn't even say thank you. Yeah, well. He's just a weird guy. Anyway, my fear is that if it turns out that he died from – it turns out he was a pill popper or yeah. he died from cocaine overdose or he had HIV, it is going to taint his legacy because we have this concept uh, yeah. of him as being this pure artistic being. I, I – you know, I don't think it will. It, 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 well, whatever, whatever, whatever comes will come. But, I mean, the thing is the guy was – say what you will. He was, he was a musical genius. I mean, oh, absolutely. A, a, one, a, prodigy, a child prodigy, an extraordinary talent who – you know, you, you listen to his music. I mean, he, he fused genres that nobody else would ever have thought to fuse. I mean, there's R&B and hip-hop and rock and, you know, pop and everything else just kind of all jammed in there. I mean, it's it really amazing. It's just amazing stuff. And, you know, I uh, Purple Rain, I, I, was, I was a lowly assistant manager at a, at a theater in uh, Westwood when that opened. And it was the exclusive. That was the platform release. And uh, we had that thing with packed houses for week after week after week. And I kid you not, I, I must have heard or seen that entire film uh, at least 200 times. At and by the way, times. it's back in theaters now. AMC yeah. has been showing yeah. it. And by the way, AMC, as we record this, yeah. AMC is going to expand it into uh, more than 200 theaters you know this el- weekend. You know who's elated about that more than anyone else probably? Albert Magnoli. <laughs> because his career... What has that guy done since Purple Rain? You know what he's done? He's, he's, done, uh, he's done like some kickboxing movies. That's what happened. I mean, I, he uh, he did a Jeff Speakman movie, I think, a few years later, and I and I remember being really elated. I was like, "Sweet Jeff Speakman," because I was I was big and keen on Jeff Speakman at the time. But uh, Magnolia's career went nowhere. It really went nowhere. And he came from uh, you know he was a USC grad. He graduated like a year or two after uh, James Foley. They came out of the same. They were kind of you know classmates together. They overlapped over at USC. 
And Foley's career, you know, is kind of on track again. And maybe Magnoli is kind of hoping, uh, you know, this will... Like, you know, remind people that he's out there as well. If I were him, I would make myself very available for interviews. You better believe it, man. Go for it. I, I, you know, Magnoli had a certain, he had a cool style. He just didn't, you know, he was overshadowed by the Prince factor. That's basically what it was. That was, uh, that was Prince's movie, and Prince went on to direct a couple of movies, which is still strange. That is still strange. Yeah. No, still, the strangest person ever to direct a movie, I'm still going to say it, Joan Rivers. John Mellencamp. Yeah, I guess that's weird too. <laughs> well, you know. By the way, yeah, I, 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 by the way, before we uh, talk about, uh, we have a Vox box. <gasps> yes, we do. Not yet. We have a Vox box. We've got some listener mail. Um, uh, we got what else do we get? What else we got? Uh, I, by the way, have not seen Civil War yet. I'm going to see it in a few days. Yeah. Now, uh, some of our friends have seen it. Yes. Right. They all love it. Tim saw it. Everyone loves it. Tim saw it. Yeah. Loved it. Everyone loves yeah. it. Seems Crazy. to be a total winner. Yeah. And which we're glad because it'll put Warner Brothers to shame. Because <laughs> Warner Brothers, they've got to be sitting in their boardrooms going, "What did we do wrong?" You know what, friend of mine, I, I, I was at a, uh, a luncheon uh, thing the other day, and a friend of ours <laughs> was there with his son, who is almost eight years old, and uh, he pulls me aside and he goes, "He goes, oh, dude, did, did Batman and Superman." I said, "I, I, I haven't seen it because you know this is what everyone does to me, right? Everyone who's not in the business, whenever they see me, the first thing they have to do is pull me aside and ask me what I thought of a movie." It, it, it like this is all I'm all I'm good for, right? I'm I'm good for opinions about movies. And he goes, "It's Batman." I, I you know I haven't seen it. He goes, "Worst movie I have ever seen." And you could tell he was just angry about it. Like he had to vent to somebody. And then his son, who is seven, looks up at me and he goes, "So boring." <laughs> and right then and there, I was like, "That's it." A dad yeah, so. and his, a dad takes his seven year old son to go see Batman and Superman, and they both. It. There's uh, there's hope for the world. Okay, that's how can Warner Brothers not have known that they were just? I mean, that's their that's their target demo. How could they miss that so badly? Uh, because how they, do you miss that so badly? You know what? I think that Ugh. they were you no know, Marvel forced their hand because they they have to go so far afield from what Marvel does, right? That they want to be able to state their own creative ground. And since Marvel is fun and colorful and they poppy just and playing, joyous. They are playing catch up right now in the worst way possible. Okay, domestic total, yeah. as of uh, this recording, domestic total, $320 million, which when you add foreign, mm-hmm. which is uh, $534 million, you get a worldwide, worldwide growth so far of $854 million. Now, obviously, that's uh, not chump change, but Warner Brothers wants this thing to make a billion dollars. A billion dollars worldwide is considered the line above which yeah. it is a worldwide super smash hit to live forever. Yeah, not going to happen. And it's not going to make it. No, not going to happen. You know, uh, I just think that right now they, they're they stuck. They yeah. can't they can't reverse course because then they'll just be accused of reversing course and doing what Marvel does. Mm-hmm. They can't reverse course. They can only really double down on what they've done. They can't. How are they going to change their films now? You know what? Uh, well, they can start by getting rid of Zack Snyder well, because he, he is. Just have Christopher Nolan do it. Yeah, well, seriously, Zack Snyder's entire narrative approach is the problem right now. I mean, and they also need to get rid of uh, what's his name? Uh, David uh, Guy, uh, Goyer. That's right, David S. Goyer. Yeah, they need to get rid of Goyer. He, no, but he's Warner. He's literally, this guy is either literally written or co written every yes. modern Warner it, Brothers superhero film. And you know what? He's, he's kind of, he's done. I mean, I appreciate what he did on Blade, which. 
which was not, you know, that's a Marvel character. But um, it's time to it's time to sort of let Goyer go, let Nolan go, let Snyder go. They need to find someone else to Godfather this thing. They do. They need somebody else who can who can sort of pick up the pieces that are left right now, which they're stuck with, and who can engineer it in a new direction. Because they've, um, they've given it to they, – they've put the, uh, uh, the whole thing in the hands of a visualist as opposed to Kevin uh, Feige. Yeah. Was, he, the Marvel guy. The Marvel – it's a Feige or Feige? Feige. Feige, right. Yeah. The Marvel overseer. That guy, he makes you stick to character. He does. You cannot do things with those characters that are and, not and in look, the canon. I'll give him. I'll give him credit. Even with Ben Affleck, who I wouldn't have cast as Batman, but look, their their casting choices are not terrible. The the Wonder Woman lady, she's fine. You know, Flash, the guy, Flash guy, no, not into that. Uh, I think that's a bad choice. But uh, you know, the uh, Aquaman dude, fine. See, I'd J- Jason, see, whatever his name is. I'd rather see. Uh, see, but even is Aquaman really that badass? He looks like just the most biggest badass mofo in the world. It's like. Yeah, I saw Super Friends. He's got little concentric circles coming out of his. He's got blonde <laughs> hair coming out of his head. Anyway, so um, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> Something about Cyborg or uh, John John's Martian I, Manhunter. That's just all bad. Yeah, probably. Okay. Well, anyway, let's uh, let me hit you with some uh, listener mail really quickly. Uh, oh, Ben Affleck. Okay. Yeah, no, Ben Affleck. Okay. okay, sorry. I would rather see Ben Affleck direct all these movies. Ben Affleck is a good director. I agree. He has he has reinvented himself. He directed an Oscar-winning Best Picture. Let's he, see. He'll, he'll, he's he's done the dark stuff with the town. But and y- it's not Baby about the Go- directors. It's not about the directors. It's about the person who sits in an executive position like Feig does. Feig doesn't write these things. He doesn't direct them, but he produces them. He is the Selznick of these of of the whole Marvel universe. And they need someone who is nerdy like Feig, who has the same pa- look. It's why I said get Greg Berlanti. Get him out of TV. And hand the whole thing to him. Let him just run the whole deal. Let him do it. Let, he's doing it really well on TV. And it's a sunnier approach to it. But come on, Flash is freaking awesome. What he's doing with Flash, amazing. Arrow, amazing. Supergirl, pretty darn good. Anyway. You really watch all these shows? I binge watch. <laughs> That's what I do. That's what I do when I have a moment. I binge watch. Anyway, uh, Jason Vargo, longtime listener. Mar, we t- remember we talked about some uh, gay-themed horror film uh, a few weeks. Yes, ago? you know yeah. what uh, he had. Well, no, he had. Uh, he said, "Here's two gay-themed horror movies. One good, the other one horrible. Hellbent." I don't know why he's addressing this to you. I guess because no, no, no. Jason sent me an email. Yes. Right. I've been waiting yeah. for the show in order to discuss yeah. the yes. email that he sent. But it so wants to be uh, hellbent. Not great, but it so wants to be good in a made-for-cable way. And the gay bed and breakfast of terror. <laughs> terrible, just terrible. The gay no, no. bed and breakfast of terror? Okay, first of all, uh, uh, any movie called The Gay Bed and Breakfast of Terror, oh my uh, I'm just going to have to, uh, being very heterosexual, I'm just yeah. going to have to watch that anyway. Because yeah. it sounds hilarious. Sure. And, but then when, when, he, when he emailed it to me, I went online, because yeah. there's, a, there's a couple clips, there's a trailer online. Yeah. And I've got to say, uh, it looks awesome. <laughs> How could it not? It's The Gay uh, Bed and Breakfast know. of Terror. Uh, Philip Vater, I hope I'm mispronouncing his name correctly and not mispronouncing it. Philip Vater, could be Vader. Uh, if it's Vader, that would be cool. Um, uh, hi, Mark Wade, just saw Gilda on the new Criterion Collection Blu-ray and noticed a lot of parallels between that film and Casablanca. Gil- Gilda was released in 46, Casablanca released in 42. Your thoughts on whether Gilda was largely derived from Casablanca and any other interesting history on this possibility? Um, and actually, yeah, that everyone has people have talked about that for years, and they talked about it at the time, of course. And uh, it's it's pretty obvious that Gilda was directly inspired by Casablanca, and that they said, "Hey, let's uh, do something Casablanca-like for uh, Rita Hayworth." 
and uh, you know, look what it did for uh, Ingrid Bergman. Let's do it. Let's do one for Rita. And it, that's exactly what it was. And you know what? It's good too. It works. Not as good as Casablanca, but uh, the the setting was actually switched to Buenos Aires at the last minute. They originally that film was originally set in the U.S. It was a lot less Casablanca-ish, but wound up being more so. But um, you know, no one ever actually has confirmed that. But it's just, it was so obvious to everybody, especially even at the time in '46, that you just it, it's kind of accepted this gospel. So yes, Gilda is a, a rip off of Casablanca, but it's a damn good ripoff. Yes, it is. In fact, if you go online, you can find there are websites that will compare. Oh yeah, yeah. The two films. Long list of stuff. Someone's calling you. Uh, this is our friend Ray Green. Oh. Who I guess will be interviewed on the show this week because uh, he's going to show up. He's going to show up. Is he, he down there? Huh? He's down there right now. Oh, he's coming up. He's no. coming up now. Very nice. This is happening live as we Very speak. Very good. All right. So I hope you uh, have some questions to ask Ray because Sweet. Uh, otherwise... Uh, you well, know. you know what? We do have a thing that we'll talk to Ray about. We do. We okay. absolutely do. Uh, well, before Ray gets here then, um, also had an email from Kevin uh, who says, Hey guys, when movies with IMAX scenes are moved to Blu-ray... Uh, do the IMAX scenes get transferred as well? Some Batman versus Superman scenes are in the IMAX format, and I don't think I'll get a chance to see it in IMAX. Would love to see what the IMAX scenes look like, and would hate it if this was the only opportunity and I missed it. Um, so anyway, the answer to that is a little complicated. Yes, uh, for example, the Dark Knight, uh, Dark, or Dark Knight Returns on Blu-ray has some IMAX scenes that take up a little bit more resolution on your uh, your HD TV. But they're obviously not in that. It's all still down-resed, so you're not really getting any kind of advantage out of it. So the answer is, anything that's shot in IMAX, you're you're never really going to get the IMAX resolution until and unless you actually see it in IMAX format in a, in a you know an IMAX projection situation in a theater. So um, yeah, that's unfortunately the the reality. Unless they figure something out with 4K, but even then, 4K is still 35 millimeter resolution. So. You know, it's kind of a kind of a kind of a bummer, but there it is. That's the reality. All right, we have a special guest, Mark. Who's our? Well, Mark, you're you're over there. Our special guest I've goes by. Stolen his microphone. Yes, you have. Our our special guest has stolen Mark's microphone, and our special guest is Oslo Welsh. Oslo Welsh. Thank you, Oslo, for being here. Um, I consider myself a kind of a lunch bucket kind of a critic. <laughs> I think I recommend I, I recommend films based on my notion of the common man. Very good. Well, you have uh, you, we have we have imposed a lightning round of choices on you, and you have sorted these films out in from bad to better. Okay, I like to call it from bad to better yet. The well, bad ones on the top, the good ones on the bottom. All right. Well, uh, could you could you share your opinion of what we have, uh, what you have in front of you? Well, we start with the really, really very bad. I don't know if you like um, classic animation. Personally, I love animation, um, but you know, I'm kind of a Bugs Bunny, you know, Chuck Jonesy kind of a guy. But what I'm looking at here are um, Blu-rays, which is kind of ludicrous on its face for these particular movies of the Ant and the Aardvark. You know, like when you used to watch the relatively bad Pink Panther cartoons, then after the Pink Panther cartoon was over, they'd have the Ant and the Aardvark. You don't even remember this. Um, some of the worst uh, theatrical cartoons ever made by uh, DePatty and Freling. The interesting thing is that the Freling in the DePatty Freling studio is Fritz Freling, who is one of the greats from Warner Brothers, so I personally blame DePatty for this <laughs> being as bad as it is. Next, we have a two-disc set of more DePatty Freling. Uh, the Inspector, this is Clouseau, but without the Pink Panther. 
pointless, pointless, pointless. <laughs> I blame Depaki. Uh, now, now, this is really interesting. Um, our next terrible movie, and this is a really terrible movie, in case you didn't notice, is called The Revenant. Now, yes, it saw some action on Oscar night, but did you actually sit through this movie? <laughs> Except for the part where the bear was yanking Leonardo DiCaprio all over the place and a little bit of the battle in the beginning, this is a really bad movie. Uh, shot from an angle so low that I felt like it was a movie about Leonardo DiCaprio's nasal hair. Um, it's a torturous movie. Uh, it, it has none of the physical beauty of, for a movie that, that they spent so much time filming. None of the physical beauty you would expect from an outdoors picture about, that, that thinks it has some kind of a spiritual core. In fact, it's shot exactly like Birdman. And and that type of shooting for Birdman made sense to me because Birdman is like a, a fantasia inside the guy's mind. I don't know what this thing was except really, really hard to watch. The Revenant. Terrible movie. You don't need it in your library. Um, now we come to a movie that should have been great but isn't. So that ranks a little higher than terrible. Um, this is the movie Death Becomes Her. Meryl Streep, Bruce Willis, Goldie Hawn. Directed by Robert Zemeckis. May, might be his least known movie at this point because it just it didn't quite work. It wants to be a black comedy uh, in which Meryl Streep is this uh, really, really bad person who is uh, resurrected and gets to continue being bad. And um, it wants to sort of be a horror movie. It didn't just come together, probably because Zemeckis had just broken up with his partner, uh, Robert, uh, it's Gale, right? Bob Gale. Bob Gale, mm -hmm. yeah, who co-wrote Back to the Future. Used and Cars. Used Cars mm -hmm. and every other Zemeckis movie. Right, exactly. Please feel free to chime in. Okay, yeah, no, no. I'm just enjoying um, this. They split up, and uh, they had uh, uh, Zemeckis had literally never made a movie since his Zemeckis, film days at USC. Zemeckis lost his Robert Bolt. It was like Lean losing his Bolt, or, or like... Uh, uh, Inyaritu losing his uh, the other the, the guy who rode Babel with him. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I'm really impressed that you know how to pronounce Inyaritu. By Thank way. you. Um, that's because Claudia Puig drilled that into us all. That's good to know. Yeah. The, the 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 special point to make here is that um, uh, Zemeckis uh, righted himself. He went on to make Contact, Forrest Gump, of course. He's made some very good movies, and he's made a few very very bad movies. Um, the Polar Express. Uh, <laughs> can I go off in the Polar Express for a second? Sure, why not? I just want to say to anybody who watches that every Christmas that this is the movie that convinced me that there is such a thing as the human soul. Because when you look at these <laughs> absolutely dead-eyed animated versions of Tom Hanks, of which there are, I think, 93 in this movie, uh, they all look as if somebody has sucked their souls out through their eyeballs and uh, uh, left them dead zombie hulks of cheerfulness. So that's uh, not a good movie either. And Death Becomes Her wanted to be a good movie, but it wasn't. Um, now we come to movies that start to be interestingly bad and kind of good. This is an anthology I'm looking at here. It's called Hammer Films Collection, which uh, seems to me like something that should have been taken as a title, actually. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I like those old Hammer horror movies. I kind of grew up with them on television, like a lot of you guys out there. I am a lunch bucket sort of a critic after all. <laughs> and, uh, but I looked at the titles on this thing. Creatures the World Forgot. Never Take Candy from a Stranger. Maniac. Die, Die, My Darling. The Snorkel. <laughs> There's a Hammer horror film called The Snorkel. And, uh, and then one movie I recognize. The Revenge of Frankenstein. 
part of the Hammer Frankenstein cycle that revitalized those old universal horror movies by actually focusing on the guy named Frankenstein, who is not the guy with the bolts in his neck. He's mm-hmm. actually the scientist. Um, Frank, Dr. Frankenstein in all of the Hammer horror films is played by the great Peter Cushing. It's a nuanced performance, very different from his Van Helsing. His Van Helsing in the Dracula films, very compassionate. I'm so glad you remember this. <laughs> yeah, no problem. His, it, it, but his, I, I think his most chilling character is his Frankenstein in the Hammer Frankenstein yeah. movies because he's a total <clears throat> Nietzschean Superman. <laughs> How about that? For a lunch bucket guy. That's pretty big stuff. He is, he is amoral. He lives by his own force of will. And he thinks that his superiority to everything around him allows him to do terrible, terrible things, which you get to watch in loving and spectacular, splatterish red technicolor. Mm. Um, so I can recommend this entire Hammer Films collection purely on the basis of the fact that Peter Cushing plays Frankenstein in one of the movies. <laughs> Now we move to a movie that's somewhat better than The Revenge of Frankenstein. We all, we all like this a lot, I think. Son of Saul. The Oscar-winning foreign language film. By, uh, and, and, uh, Wade, you're the master of foreign pronunciation. Laszlo Nemes, I think? Nemesh. Nemesh. Yeah, Laszlo right. that's Nemesh. Right. I forgot. Laszlo Nemesh. I should yeah. know this. Yeah, first-time director. Laszlo Nemesh, and took forever to direct it as well. Yeah. It took many years to make this film. Son of Saul... Won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Film. Don't now. you now? Don't you agree? Wouldn't you agree? I think that all that stagey stuff in The Revenant that he does, that borrowed from Birdman, where you feel like they spent a week and a half putting all the pieces into place and everything just looks very perfectly staged and choreographed with the camera. I don't think this is any less impressive, but it's less obvious. It's more organic. I didn't find the stuff in The Revenant to be beautifully staged. No. I found it to be... Meticulously uh, staged, but very showy. Well, we could talk about camera movement for an entire (laughs) episode of your series if I was being paid to do this way. But, uh, you know, camera movement, to me, when it's used the way that it was used in The Revenant, is really about the director wanting Mm -hmm. to demonstrate with every frame of the film that it has been directed! Mm -hmm. In Son of Saul, a movie that has long, fluid takes, basically there is a completely organic reason, which is they want you to see it as a real environment. In fact, one of the things that didn't get said about this movie, well, we need to explain the movie, Son of Saul is a movie where uh, that takes place in Auschwitz, where the lead character is a Sonderkommando. Sonderkommando is somebody who was responsible for cleaning up after the dead when the gas chambers were. Up. And they are inmates as well. I mean, they are they are Jews. They are inmates part of, as well. Inmates and and uh, we we meet him as his time as a Sonderkommando is about to come to an end, which means they're next in the chambers. Um, it's an absolutely beautiful movie about a man who basically dis- rediscovers his humanity, a dead man. He is a dead man. He has had to become dead to do what he does. And he rediscovers his humanity because there's a boy who doesn't die in the gas chamber. There's a boy who survives. He's horribly uh, gasping for breath, but the gas chamber hasn't killed him. And this particular man, Saul, looks that boy in the eyes and he decides that it's going to be his task in life to make sure he gets a real traditional Jewish burial. He needs to do one human thing before the horror engulfs him. It's an absolutely stunning movie. Great. And and one thing that I think didn't get said enough about this film is that it's structured in a way that that very intentionally takes Saul across the length and breadth 
of what Auschwitz was. It's not simply ovens. Saul goes on a quest to find a rabbi to perform the task that he wishes to have performed for this dead body, which he manages to steal from the Nazis. And in searching for that rabbi, he takes us into every nook and cranny of Auschwitz, de- demonstrating something that's important to remember, which is it was a, it was a factory. It, 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 had, it had weight and heft. It was like carefully plotted hell that was created by human beings to function like a well-oiled machine. And that is what humanity is up against. And I think that can be extended even beyond the experience of Nazism, not that it needs to be. This is yep. a beautiful movie. It's fantastic. Uh, you know, um, it's, a, it's a cliche that movies about the Holocaust win the Oscar. But you know what? The, the truth is it's an eternally important human experience that we need to not forget. And when somebody finds a, a really brilliant new way to make us look squarely at the horror, we should honor it. So pretty good movie. But not as good... As Rudy Ray Moore in Dolomite, (laughs) because I am a lunch bucket critic here. Dolomite on Blu-ray for the very first time, let's point out. Dolomite is on Blu-ray. Now, if you don't know who Dolomite is, well, let us tell you who Dolomite is. First of all, Rudy Ray Moore deserves all kind of mad props because he invented this character. Yeah, it's kind of a ripoff of the blaxploitation characters of the period. It's a little bit superfly. It's a little bit shaft, but it's all Rudy Ray Moore. It's a caricature of African-American sexual, moral, and physical energy, often playing with a lot of the cliches that white people laid on black people. You know, like, like uh, uh, you know, if, if a white woman looks at Dolomite, she will orgasm in these movies. Rudy Ray Moore basically did everything on these films, and they were completely independent productions. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they laid fallow for decades and were rediscovered by hipsters in the and, 1990s. And he, he goes off in all of these films and does a lot of stand-up routines, which is what he was famous for, these, these epic stand-up routines. But a, a tidbit on Dolomite that people should know, Rudy Ray Moore was the first black man to actually own his own negative. He fully independently financed this film, and he owned it. He owned it outright and you exploited it. You just skipped over the, Melvin Van Peebles, my friend. He didn't own it. He didn't own Melvin it. Melvin Van Peebles certainly owned sweet, the story sweet of a three-day pass long before... Before Ray Moore owned Dolomite. Ah, but that, that is... That, Those are his movies. These movies he made before he made Sweet Sweetback's Badass See? Song. That's that's beyond me. You beat yeah. me. There you go. Yeah. What do I win? I, well, Rudy... I'm Rudy, taking all the DVDs home. Rudy claimed, Rudy claimed otherwise. Oh, well, Rudy was... <laughs> you know, I'm sure he's a paragon of truth. Uh, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. According to... By the way, according to Melvin Van Peebles' book, he did own that movie. Uh, and he made a fortune Eventually. Off of the film. Eventually. Okay, well... Yeah. Uh, I think Rudy Ray wanted to give himself some sort of credit other than the fact that this movie is a parody of Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, which is the first blaxploitation film, and it's important to remember doesn't know it's a blaxploitation film. True. It's a very different achievement and a very important achievement in American cinema, not just African-American cinema. Sweetback is. Uh, Dolomite is just a blast. (laughs) You want to watch something that will make you laugh and feel guilty about it. But you'll admire the hell out of the energy, and and not always, uh, you know, energy is its primary talent on display. Um, but it is uh, for those of us who can reach into our minds and correct for things that maybe could have been done a little differently. It's a great ride. Rudy Rudy's uh, kung fu is is good, but it's better in the sequel, The Human Tornado, which also features the film debut of Ernie Hudson. 
Uh, by the way, it, that's pronounced the human tornado. <laughs> if, you, if you were to read it. Okay. So, Dolomite. So, Dolomite, slightly better than Son of Saul. Um, now we come to the best movie of the week. Oh, wait, I skipped over one um, because I don't know quite how, where to place it. Uh, Alice's Restaurant. Um, now, oh, this is, wait a minute, this isn't uh, the Arthur Penn movie, dude. No, this is the this concert. Is concert film. Okay, yeah. Ar- Arlo Guthrie. Well, okay, I'll go on Arlo Guthrie. It's a, it's a, it, this is a music uh, documentary, basically, Arlo Guthrie singing and playing and so forth. I'm going to give Arlo some props. I'm not ranking him. He, he's not better than Dolomite, but uh, I'm going to give him some props. Great American voice, uh, very important figure. I actually saw him many, 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 many years ago at a little tiny offshoot No Nukes concert that was held in Manchester, New Hampshire. Uh, and the acts for our little mini festival in Manchester, we didn't get Springsteen, we didn't get Jackson Brown, we didn't get, you know, John Cougar Mellencamp. We didn't get Neil Young. We got Arlo Guthrie and the Pusset Dart Band. And you know what? Arlo was great. He was absolutely charming. Guy can play the hell out of anything acoustic. He's the son of the great Woody Guthrie, of course. Um, The interesting thing about Arlo, in addition to the fact that he's actually written a lot of really good songs, uh, coming into Los Angeles uh, is probably the most famous one. Um, he did the uh, what for for me is um, uh, probably the definitive version of what, what was it the night they drove old Dixie down? Oh, I don't know. Oh, I'm trying to no. I'm sorry. City of New Orleans. Oh Remember yeah, yeah, City yeah, of yeah, New yeah. Orleans. Sure, yeah, yeah. That was his big hit, and yeah. it's, it's an absolutely beautiful recording. But what people don't know about Arlo is that he lived under a kind of a death sentence for a lot of his life. His father died a horrible death from uh, an MS-related disease. I'm forgetting the exact name of the disease. It's like Lou Gehrig's disease. Yeah. Um, very, very horrible death. Uh, Woody Guthrie um, became unable to speak, unable to play his, his instrument, and so on and so forth. And because of the nature of that disease, Arlo Guthrie, until midlife, didn't know if he was going to get it. Um, one of his uh, albums in the 70s is called Outlasting the Blues, and it's an album about you know knowing every day that you might wake up and find that there's atrophy and that you're going to have to live through this terrible thing he saw his father live through. Um, So the second half of his career is a grace note. And this little documentary here, uh, named after his most famous countercultural track, Alice's Restaurant, uh, is, uh, you know, the 50th anniversary concert celebrating his entire career. Well worth your time and money. Lovely. Now we come to our climactic best film of the week. <laughs> better than Son of Saul. Better than The Revenge of Frankenstein. And, uh, you know, a movie that didn't get its due. I blame DePatty for that, by the way. Okay. We're uh, blaming DePatty for everything this I week. I am, I am. I'm blaming him for Trump as well, by the way. <laughs> That's not Freling's fault. Freling would have seen the humor in that one. Uh, the Stuff. This is a film by Larry Cohen. Now, Larry Cohen is an interesting figure in the history of Hollywood because sometimes he's written A features. Yeah. Um, Phone Booth uh, was a Which Larry was Cohen. originally supposed to be a Hitchcock film yeah, many, a, many years earlier. A, a, a Larry Cohen script, you know, yeah. a Phone Booth, a movie about a guy stuck in a phone booth in an era when we don't have yeah. any phone booths. Kind of a major achievement just to get that produced. But Cohen has, back in the 70s, late 70s and into the mid-80s, Cohen would sometimes go and make low, low, low-budget horror films. The Stuff is uh, the probably the best of them. 
it is a, I think, a right-wing satire of left-wing political correctness. That's fascinating. It is about uh, the... Uh, I uh, never thought of it that way. But it is, right? It I is. Mean, you know, yeah, I can see that. It's about how, um, you know, uh, Larry Cohen was irritated by the fact that we were all supposed to start eating right and all that kind of stuff back in the 80s. Remember yeah. when people ate wrong intentionally? <laughs> there was a big best-selling book called Real Men Don't Eat Quiche mm-hmm. back in those days. So he made this movie called The Stuff in which uh, – it's also a little bit left-wing because there's an evil chemical company or something. But they invent an ad- a highly addictive uh, food substitute yogurt that if you – I think the original poster said, are you eating it or is it eating you? Um, it's kind of hilarious. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the only movie I can think of uh, off the top of my head that features Garrett Morris from Saturday Night Live yep. playing a version of Famous Amos. So he's like a dessert king, so he gets involved because the stuff is, you know, That's it's, great. everybody's so addicted to it, it's killing all the desserts. But the main thing this movie's doing is it's with a very kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, blank-faced, black comedic, satiric uh, energy, it's going after uh, all the meaningless and stupid rules that Larry Cohen thought were becoming a big part of our culture. It will seem like a real period piece because those rules won, but I think it's a neglected little horror gem that will that's one of the movies that helped me get through the 80s. Outstanding. And that is new to Blu-ray from the Arrow Collection. The Arrow Collection that's giving us a lot of really cool exploitation stuff. And uh, a lot of fun extras on that. Including the uh, Can't Get Enough of the Stuff Making of little uh, featurette. And uh, by the way, there's also a Making of documentary on Dolomite. And the one thing I will add for The Revenant is The Revenant is also available in a 4K Blu-ray edition, which is the first 4K Blu-ray that I've seen that is actually, um, uh, that honors the 4K format, that actually makes me think, okay, there's something to this. But that, I think, is only because the film was shot with those new Aeroflex cameras, which are, in theory, kind of like the equivalent of a 65mm or 70mm digital camera. The question I have, then, is if it looks so good in 4K, does it amplify the suckiness? Or does it actually... It makes Make the suckiness a little more tolerable. It makes the bear look unbelievably like something that Depati would have done in one of those animated films. I think Depati did a lot of damage. He to did. Our culture. Yeah, we're dragging that into the light here. On we, the are. we are. We are. Mark, uh, should we? Are, are you going to join the show again here at I, some point? I, I, I'm very much enjoying. Uh, uh, yeah, way, sure. way off, Mike. Mark is telling he's enjoy, enjoying uh, us. Cumberbatch. Yeah. Cumberbatch. Welsh. Oslo, Oslo Welsh. Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, the the question I have is, if you watch enough Depati movies, does that mean that you become Depati trained? Oh boy, that was really bad. Wade has a kid. You know, he thinks that. Uh, you know, it's a funny thing I've noticed in life when people get kids, <laughs> gradually, 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 but they go down to that level. <laughs> Where, like, they think saying wee-wee is funny? I don't know. It's a thing. All right, Can, can I throw out a couple yes. of other quick thoughts? Yes. Um, I just want to say that since the stuff really is the best movie on the pile this mm-hmm. week, uh, you know, go, go look at some other of those old gems from the 80s. Uh, about half the Freddy Krueger movies are worth another look, uh, especially if you view them as parables about the time. Um, the 80s were very materialistic, and these are movies about teenagers who have better sex than you'll ever have and drive better cars than you'll ever drive. And Freddy doesn't kill them in the middle period of those films. It's their possessions that come to life and kill them. So, oh, wow. you know, you materialists out there. And I also want to throw out my absolute favorite neglected horror movie from the 80s, uh, uh, Hidden. Do you remember a film called Hidden? Oh, sure. Yeah, I like that sure. Movie. 
Hidden was an amazingly great movie starring Kyle MacLachlan and some ex-porn actor playing a cop. Uh, but it was actually about the id of the 1980s. This alien creature comes to Earth. It can jump from body to body. And the only way you can tell whose body it's in is that it's completely addicted to fast cars, heavy metal music, and anything to do with eating and sex. So it's basically, oh, and by the end, it decides it's going to run for president. So, yeah. you know, that's America <laughs> to a lunch bucket guy like me. I remember the hidden so well. That freaked a lot of people out. Well, thank you, uh, uh, Oslo. Uh, was his Welsh. Welsh. Oslo, Oslo Welsh. Welsh. Thank you, Oslo. They invite me on the show, and they both forget my name. <laughs> I'm getting. I'm picking up my lunch bucket, and I'm going home. All right. Thank you, Oslo. Oh, Round of applause. Back? Yeah, you're coming back. You're, you're coming and now back. I throw the microphone over to Mark uh, Cumberbatch. Was it? Yeah, Is Cumberbatch. Oswald Cumberbatch's name of the penguin. So uh, let's let's roll. Is through. That Oslo. No, no, but Oswald Cumberbatch was the name of the penguin in Batman, right? Was his name not Oswald Cumberbatch? Uh, yeah, Cumberbatch? Whatever it was. It was something like that. Come dancing? I don't know. Yeah. All right, new movies. Mark, shall we, shall we nail some new movies off? We, I would love to nail some new movies. Okay. Uh, well, Natalie Portman in Jane Got a Gun. This thing was uh, delayed a couple of times, and uh, I actually think this is not a bad Western. Um, she's... Without giving too much away, uh, Jane has a, a bit of a history, and she thinks that she's sort of settled down happily, and it turns out that some some individuals and some events that uh, from an earlier chapter of her life are now returning to haunt her and her husband, and uh, naturally that means a lot of gunfire out in the open prairie and a lot of, uh, a lot of you know, female empowerment, which is the new thing now in, in Westerns, right? We've got to have tough women out on the frontier. We didn't used to have them. We had... You know, Annie Oakley and Annie got a gun and they sang songs, but now now it's Natalie Portman with a rifle. And I'm okay with that. I actually think this is a good film. It's out on Blu-ray for the first time, and uh, Natalie Portman really has kind of... Uh, Noah Emmerich's in this as well, by the way. Very, very good. And uh, not much by way of extras, but you do get ultraviolet if you want to carry it around on your phone and get some female Western empowerment somewhere on the plane or on a train or somewhere like that. It's good. It's good. Now, uh, Jane got a gun. Uh, Natalie Portman really has kind of she's gone, gone off grid a little bit, hasn't she? Uh, yes, since winning very much the Oscar. So. She had a kid. She had a kid. I, she, I believe she was raising her child. Yeah. She directed so, a movie. She directed a movie. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Wait. Who, Fair who, enough. Who, who said that? I, I don't, uh, Is that Oswald Cumberpot? What's your name yeah. again? <laughs> Uh, yeah, so carry on. Oh, yeah, you got some concert stuff there, too. So fire, I have two concert up. things to yeah. talk about. One is a Rainbow Monsters of Rock. Now, uh, Richie Blackmore, of course, was a founding member of Deep Purple, Smoke on the Water. And uh, his main solo contribution was uh, as, a, uh, as the main guitarist of Rainbow. He had a couple of hits. And this is from 1980. This is uh, live at uh, Donington. And uh, I'm a big C Deep Purple CD, fan. CD-DVD combo, I guess. It is, is a yeah. CD-DVD combo, yeah. not a Blu-ray combo. No, Blu-ray not involved. Um, I'm much more of a Deep Purple fan than, than I am a Rainbow fan, but if you are a, um, let's say, a, a Richie Blackmore completist, you may want to go for this. Of course, it doesn't look that great, because, again, this is uh, 36 years ago. By the way, 1980, 36 years ago. Put that out there. All right, fair enough. And uh, I got a couple here from Indican. Uh, Indican is releasing a lot of really interesting little indies. Uh, one is called The Afghan, which should not be confused as having really anything to do with Afghanistan these days. Uh, it, 
it, it's basically about a refugee from Afghanistan, but it uh, otherwise has next to nothing to do with it. But it's uh, it, it, it's actually not bad. Um, you know, the it's a, it's a kind of a children's uh, one of those coming of age deals. Kids, uh, you know, connecting in ways that adults can't, um, and then throw in a little bit of a thriller angle, and you know, you come up with a decent indie. I uh, got another one here called Adios Via Con Dios. Uh, which is uh, one of those uh, kind of urban thrillers that uh, you know are set against the backdrop of gang warfare in a major city, in this case Chicago. Um, doesn't really uh, doesn't really have anything above and beyond any other films that have sort of dealt with this world, other than the fact that it is directed by La Raza, and I don't know if that's the name of a guy or a collective. I don't know what that is. Anyway, Mark, what else you got? Oh, I ride along too. This is a piece of crap starring uh, Ice Cube and Kevin Hart. I'm just saying it's a piece of crap because we have a very, very famous person here yes, sitting we next to me who does not want me referring to films as pieces of crap. But it's right along, too. May I just say yeah. that in, instead of wallowing in, in, the, uh, in, in the cheap laughs and cliches of Right Along 2, which stars uh, two African-American uh, comics, you should check out the Barbershop series. The Barbershop series, real issues discussed in the Barbershop series, Wade Major. Yes, I know. Right? Can you not respect uh, Oswald yeah. Cobblepot? Can you not respect the Barbershop series? I think... They the, put real, real African-American issues out there in, in, in the form of a comedy. Those films are good. I want to point out that Spike Lee's famous student film was called Joe's bed Barbershop, We Cut Heads. There is a tradition in the African-American community of these being important meeting spaces, mm-hmm. and I think the Barbershop films honor that tradition in the way they depict the barbershop and the people who come into it. I agree. As opposed to Ride Along 2, which uh, really honors and worships money. Yeah. And the making of money. By the way, the, the guys who wrote uh, Ride Along 2, who have been studio hacks for quite a long time, also wrote a spec film, which uh, I recently saw and covered on radio, called The Invitation, which is in theaters right now. We'll probably be talking about it on DVD or Blu-ray in uh, a couple of months. But uh, The Invitation, sharp film. So clearly they are able to shed their hackery when the big paychecks aren't rolling. Packed Blame in a- the producers. Huh? Ice Cube. Yes. Well, you know, Ice Cube. Who would have thought he'd been he'd become the mogul guy that he is, making the movies that he is? Kind of interesting. Look, after a while, you know, these guys. It's like Queen Latifah. She's yeah. cleaned up now, and she's starring in HBO movies. Yeah. I mean, after a while, you know, you grow like like any actor or actress. You have to find that new phase of your career, and it's interesting that these early rap stars have to sort of make that same transition. Where do they go? Is Ice Cube going to be a 55-year-old rapper rapping about uh, uh, the police? He, he very He's gotta well He's got to find maybe. something. Oh, here comes Oswald Cobblepot. <laughs> I just love the fact that the guy who's saying, we have language standards, so i got to say F the police here. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Who's saying F the police plays cops. <laughs> and I love the fact that Ice-T, who wrote the famous song Cop Killer, spent like, 19 years on homicide Still. life in the streets. No, no, it, uh, S, uh, 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 Whatever. SVU. Whatever, playing a police officer. I mean, yeah. you know, irony, America. Yes. Irony, please. Yes. Oh, we've got a couple of animated things here. Albert, Up, Up, and Away is a an animated film based uh, on or inspired by the Ole Lund Kierkegaard book, Albert. Uh, I'm going to assume that Ole. If Lund- I see another film based on the Earl Kierkegaard yeah. book, Albert, I'm just going to scream. That's not the same Kierkegaard that people study in uh, in, in college. Wade is pulling these foreign pronunciations out of his butt, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> and he just knows that Mark and, and Oslo Welsh yeah. are too too uh, illiterate yeah. to call him on it. 
Well, anyway, it's uh, it's it, this is essentially a low budget animated attempt to do something similar to Up. Uh, all the you know the, the kids take off in a hot air balloon, winds up not being all that. Uh, it, it it feels a little bit more like like wacky races in the air at a certain point, but uh, it's innocuous Ooh. enough. And <laughs> well, you know. 1963 anime. <laughs> yeah, there you go. We're that kind of show. Uh, we're like we are. We're sharp uh, on Blu-ray and DVD with uh, a little bit of uh, ultraviolet on it as well. Is the animated film that completely tanked Norm of the North. Uh, this was a Lionsgate release, and uh, I guess it meant to be a little bit like Ice Age, uh, with all about a polar bear named Norm, and uh, who go- by Rob Schneider. Was- yeah, yeah, it, this, it, it's it's like uh, it, it's like Crocodile Dundee with a polar bear. It, he goes to New York, you know, he's a polar bear out of ice, out of water, fish out of water, fish out of Arctic water. I don't know how you want to put it, but anyway, uh, pretty pretty ru- routine stuff. Nothing really spectacular. Uh, they've got you know really really kind of lame extras on it, but I you know right, will the, will it keep the kids busy for ninety minutes? Yeah, sure, absolutely. If you got to do something, so pop it on and. Uh, you know, push pause on the household chaos. Uh, yes, oh, Mark. back to yes. me. Back to you. Uh, Daniel Tosh is a stand-up comic who um, I do enjoy. He's kind of a one-dimensional comic. He doesn't have much to say. He's certainly not a Chris Rock type. But uh, I do find his one-liners funny. He's had a Comedy Central show for many years that I do get uh, the occasional chuckle out of. This is a uh, DVD, not a Blu-ray, Daniel Tosh People Pleaser. This is a live concert from the uh, Wilshire Ebell Theater, where I went to a wedding about 20 years ago. Um... So, again, if you love Daniel Tosh, that's definitely worth a look. Otherwise, I would pass. Also, uh, if you want to get your Joe Dante on, you might want to check out Krampus. What do you think of Krampus? I like Krampus. Uh, you know what I liked about Krampus? It's very, like, gremlins-y, poltergeist-y. Yeah, I like, the thing I liked most about Krampus was that it gave us another year to sort of uh, extend the joke that we started with uh, in Lafka, where we actually put forward... Uh, Mr. Babadook in the uh, in the acting categories and his best new uh, new talent and I think uh, that really was a lot of fun this year that we were actually pushing Krampus for best actor. Wait wait wait! One of us what was it kept it, you, it going? No, was it okay? Here's the thing: in Lafka, yeah. there's a there's a Google Doc that goes around, and the Google Doc you and everyone add, and you enter the names of the actors and the individuals. And it's serious and, stuff because it's we, serious. We, we take it seriously yeah. and. And somebody, it was either you or me, entered Krampus as best actor. Who, was that you or me? I think it might have been you. It wasn't me. Well, no, wasn't it wasn't me. you that it was me. I think I did. It was probably you. I put Mr. Babadook in the previous year. I, 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 I don't know it's not Mrs. Babadook. You don't really, do you really know? Eh, you maybe know. maybe uh, Babadook is transgender. Wouldn't it be crazy? What restroom would, would the Babadook use? That wouldn't be transgender. That would be uh, transduk. Exactly. All right, so uh, Krampus is uh, good uh, kind of non-traditional yeah, Joe fine. Dante holiday uh, fun. Sure, why not? Exactly. Absolutely. Oh, wait, hang on a second. Yes. Uh, again, uh, I, I want to add a historical perspective. Um, you know, if you've seen Gremlins, it does have that wonderful scene where Phoebe Cates tells us about how her dad dressed up as Santa, yeah. got trapped in the chimney, yeah. and decomposed over the holiday season. <laughs> so I think Krampus is really showing that Joe is an auteur sure. and who has a really interesting view of the Christmas season. Absolutely. I like how you 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 affect the uh, Joe Sixpack accent to to hide your highfalutin New Yorker reading pinky in the air ways. The, the truth is, this is the way I really talk. I actually <laughs> cultivate other ways of talking to deal with um, people I don't like. All right. Mark, back to you. Yeah, I like to bury in cement. There we go. You're wearing some cement shoes. 
becoming more and more comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, we have backtrack. This is uh, this is straight to uh, Blu-ray uh, 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 average stuff, starring uh, Oscar winner Adrian Brody. Putting that out mm-hmm. there. Yeah. And Sam Neill, and by the way, who's still out there. He is. I like Sam Neill. Yeah. Glad the guy's still getting work. Uh, anyway, um, there you go. We're, sometimes we just tell you they exist, <laughs> and uh, that's all we can say. It's on Blu-ray. It's uh, on Blu-ray. We have uh, good uh, actors. As you know, uh, one of my favorite issues of the Hollywood Reporter and Variety is the AFM issue where you get to see all the big movies that your favorite stars do that you mm-hmm. will never see. One of them would be Standoff because it stars Lawrence Fishburne. And it also stars Thomas Jane. By the way, Thomas Jane did not make a good Punisher. However, the guy who plays the Punisher in, on the Daredevil show is awesome. Is awesome. Yeah, he is. They should spin that guy off into his own show. You know, he was uh, he was also very very good in the uh, the David Ayer Tank movie with Brad Pitt. Uh, Fury. Fury. Yep, he was very good in that too. Rock and roll. Uh, the Driftless Area was at the Tribeca Film Festival last year, and uh, this is one of those movies that has a lot of really good actors in it, and yet you wonder, what does it amount to? I mean, come on, Zoe Deschanel. John Hawks, Anton Yelchin, uh, Aubrey Plaza, Frank Langella. How can that not miss? Drift, the Driftless Area. How does that not miss? Um, and yet somehow it, uh, it just it doesn't. Uh, it's nothing. It doesn't work. And I'm not quite sure why. It's just one of those movies that has a lot of talent, and somehow uh, it all kind of wraps. Shut up! Our special guest has something to say. Nobody. Oh well. Anyway, it all wraps. It all wraps together in uh, not much. It doesn't add up to much. But uh, anyway, there it is. I just want to say, if if you loves you some Dario Argento, if you loves you some Coffin Joe, yeah, uh, maybe the box set Death Walks Twice is for you. These are. uh, is for you guys out there. I forget how to pronounce this. Giallo? What's the Italian? Giallo, yes. Giallo, yeah, the Italian yeah. horror cycle. Uh, Lu- Luciano is a lesser figure in the Italian horror cycle of the 1970s. He made these movies. This is uh, also from the Arrow collection? That's from the Arrow collection. Yeah. Death Walks on High Heels and Death Walks at Midnight. Mm-hmm. Say no more than the titles and you know if you want these movies in your life. <laughs> well done. Yeah, all right. Uh, you know, I see Death Walks twice, and all I can think of is uh, Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me, and then I remember that the, the Twin Peaks are almost, they're, they're shooting now. They're doing the new, uh, the new series. We're going to talk about Chantal Ackerman now, and uh, okay. I think I should speak in a different accent for this one. <laughs> um, uh, Chantal Ackerman is a great Belgian filmmaker who uh, really is, it almost feels like she should have been part of the French New Wave, except she really hit her vogue and her stride in the 1980s, yep. well, after the French New Wave. And we dedicated our awards uh, dinner to her passing, her untimely passing this last year. Uh, well, news to me. Yeah. Um, Ch- but Chantelle Ackerman is, as a result, enjoying a vogue. Uh, this is a collection of four of her films uh, from the east, down there, south, and from the other side. These are actually rather late films from, of her career, uh, that, that spanning 1993 to 2006. Um, this is a great art, international artist, and you're, if you're a connoisseur of film, if you're a criterion collection type of person, you should really think about checking them out. There is actually a wonderful Chantal Ackerman um, uh, box set. I'm trying to remember if it's formally a Criterion or if it's an Eclipse, but uh, that's how that's been out as well. This would be a great thing to add to that. So definitely worth rediscovering her work. And there's a lot of it coming. There's a lot of it to go. I mean, she left uh, quite a body of work, didn't she? She was the prince of filmmaking. She was. 
She was. Uh, what Lola Wants is one of these uh, hyper-low-budget indies that uh, does a reasonable job of uh, kind of spinning a, um, a, a kind of a mangled teen romance off of uh, some kind of a Hollywood backdrop. But, uh, you know, not bad. Uh, Rupert Glasson, who uh, wrote and directed it, keep an eye out. Uh, he'll, he will emerge from the indie scene in, uh, in, in short order. And then another one of these uh, prison movies called Convict, oddly enough, starring George Basha and David Field. Um, kind of, you know, better than average, uh, low-budget uh, prison film, but doesn't really do anything new, so uh, that's out there. Mark, what else do we have? You asking me? I don't know. Do you have anything over there? Uh, we have Drunkstone we... Brilliant Dead, the um, story of National Lampoon. Uh, yeah, no, we're not going to get into that. Yeah, that's docs. Okay, um, you know what I'm going to do? Um, I'm going to talk about some criterions. You should do that. I'm going to talk about and three I'm, criterions. I'm, I'm going to give the uh, mic uh, to uh, Oswald Cobblepot. What's your name again? <laughs> Oslo. Welsh. Oslo. I, I have something I think I can add to the proceedings. Uh, how about if I go down the list of films starring Prince? And rate them for you. Um, None of which are available on DVD anymore, by the y- way. Y- well, the not really. No, except for uh, Pur- Purple Rain. Purple Rain's on DVD, but yeah, yeah Pur- but yeah, you're, you're talking about like uh, the really obscure stuff. Well, like, there, there's only four. Of yeah, them there, so yeah. you know. But uh, but Prince broke through. I mean, people wonder why he was so big. He, he directed two of those as films. A movie star. He directed three of those. Films. Did he direct three? Was it three? Yeah. yeah. Cherry Moon. Okay, well, let me let me. Okay, do we'll do it. You Go know, ahead. People want to know what's being talked about. Okay. Prince just died, and Prince, Prince. We okay. talked about it at the top of the show. Too. Oh, and he talked about it at the top of the yeah. show. So I'm coming in here. I'm from the same generation of uh, of, of people as Wade and and Mark, which means I'm old. And uh, <laughs> and Prince was huge for me. I saw Prince uh, from the front row at the Staples Center. I saw an after hours concert of his. I saw him on the Purple Rain tour. I saw Glam Slam Ulysses, the utterly forgotten musical he attempted at his club here in Los Angeles mm. and watched Carmen Electra carried around by a couple of bodyguards as the central prop for that show. Um, I loved Prince. I thought Prince's music was great. There seemed, when you listen to his records, like there wasn't anything he couldn't do. But there was two things he couldn't do. He was a terrible graphic artist, okay? Nobody's going to convince me that symbol he invented for himself. I, I used to refer to it as androgynous trombone when he lost his name and became a symbol. Uh, but the other thing he couldn't do is he could not direct movies to save his life. So he's in Purple Rain, which was an unexpected, big sleeper hit, very powerful movie, directed by Albert Magnoli, a reasonably we, hackish director. A USC grad. We talked about USC that at the top grad, of the show. A reasonably yeah. hackish director, but somebody who at least had like the MTV style and the movie was edited to within an inch of its life. Mm-hmm. Prince became such a big star that, as he did with music, he decided to seize control of his film career. And his next movie... It's called Under the Cherry Moon, and it is virtually unwatchable. Written and directed by Prince, black and white movie, a dis- famous, uh, should be remembered only for one thing. I believe it is the film debut of Kirsten Scott Thomas, is it not? Yes, it is. That is true. Okay, in a very shrill and awful role. This is a <laughs> terrible, terrible movie. It's set in, like, it's a period film set in Paris, but all the songs they do are modern and... Just a rotten movie. If you want uh, the good version of that movie by the album Parade, which was affiliated with it, which is a masterpiece. Prince then actually did his one good job of making a movie after that. He directed a concert film called Sign of the Times based on the album of the same name. Oh, which that's actually, the one I was leaving out. The that concert is a film. Gr- it's yeah. actually a great concert film. It yeah. is really worth seeking out, except that 
like most of the movies Prince made, you can't seek it out because it's not in print. Um, the last film he directed is a real stumper. It was actually a sequel to Purple Rain. It stars Morris Day in the Time. It stars Prince. It stars a bunch of people that were kind of hanging out at Paisley Park back in the day. It's called um, Graffiti Bridge, and it is not quite as it's unwatchable. It's not terrible. It's terrible, but it's not it's, quite. It's not under the cherry moon terrible. It's a. It, it's it's a. It's kind of a. It's sort of cultish. It it. Uh... It's got well. Here's what it's got that's good. It's got about. I think the deal that he got from Warner Brothers to make it was that it had to contain stuff that could be pulled out of it as music videos. Yeah, exactly. So there are about six music videos in it. Uh, for the songs are characteristically great. Yeah. Uh, one of them's a Tevin Campbell. Uh, song Round and Round which was one of the best things that came out of that protege of Quincy Jones uh, Prince's contributions to it are great uh, and the Times stuff is fantastic uh, neglected time gem that you can pick up on the soundtrack to Graffiti Bridge is called Shake wonderful song uh, and release it another great time song um, strangely I'm a huge Prince fan I own all the albums the song that I keep turning to over and over again in the aftermath of his death is the climactic song from that film which is called Still Would Stand All Time gospel number one of the most beautiful things he ever wrote and very poignant in the context and now we are done with the film career of Prince and I'm going to uh, I'm going to go into the Criterion stuff because we got a trio of really good Criterion films Mark has left the room by the way I think he's given up on us Mark has a day job oh yeah well, anyway, three really cool criterions. One, the first is the Kennedy films of Robert Drew and Associates, uh, which includes Primary Adventures on the New Frontier, Crisis, and Faces of November. This is a very unusual criterion release uh, that uh, you know basically is just giving us, uh, I think, films that are maybe not artistically significant, but they are um, they are historically significant. So you know, it's uh, it, it it fills. It's not, you're not going to learn a great deal about filmmaking from this, but it is certainly historically extremely significant, and I'm glad that they've added it to their library. We also have a Brief Encounter, which for many, many, ta- many, many years was atop the uh, sight and sound pole of the greatest films ever made, and of course then veered as generations passed. That eventually veered over to Citizen Kane, and recently it's become Vertigo. Isn't that strange? Vertigo is now considered by the sight and sound pole the greatest film ever made. Yeah. It's kind of weird. I, I don't get it personally, <laughs> but what do I know? Well, I think re- they just wanted to be provocative, I not cane off the thing so people would pay attention to that damn list again. Well, Brief Encounter was uh, one of David Lean's early successes, and uh, it was during his Noel Coward period when he was directing things written by Noel Coward, which all sort of came with a, a, huge, uh, a huge pedigree. But uh, here's the thing about Brief Encounter. It's a very simple story. Uh, essentially a story of a bored housewife who meets a, a man uh, at the train station and develops this sort of platonic attraction that almost becomes a love affair. And it is a, a remarkable film because of the performances. And uh, you're really watching this primarily for Celia Johnson. Trevor Howard is the man, Celia Johnson is the woman. But Celia Johnson has a, a, a face that is unmatched in film acting history except perhaps by Juliette Binoche. I would just like to add that I personally hate this movie. <laughs> it's part of a British genre that drives me completely up the wall about people who have loves that dare not speak their names and are slowly crushed by them. The English patient being the worst ever example of it because they're not just crushed by it, they're set on fire. This was the this was the first one. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I, I mean, get over it. Well, if if you if, folks, if you ever fall in love with somebody, go ahead and sleep with them. 
You know, that's the lesson of these movies. The This includes the 2008 restoration of the film, uh, the uh, 2000 film histor- uh, commentary by film historian Bruce Ader, uh, an interview uh, with Noel Coward scholar Barry Day from 2012, short documentary, uh, a bunch of other great things, including the one that I really love on this is David Lean, A Self-Portrait, which is a uh, TV documentary from 1971 on David Lean's career, which covers everything up through Ryan's daughter. Does obviously It obviously does not cover uh, Passage to India, the last film. But and and this, is really why, this is why you really want to get the Criterions. They're so well curated. Um, Absolutely. Some of the best stuff you'll get on Fellini and Bunuel are not necessarily even on the best of their films. It's entirely true. Um, but, true. Uh, but you know, again, you're watching restrained British people get crushed to death by emotions they can't fully feel. Yawn. And then we also have Phoenix, which is uh, a really cool Criterion release of a film that just came out this last year. Christian Petzold's uh, amazing movie, uh, which was a one of the huge foreign language hits last year. Uh, really amazing, uh, fascinating World War II film. I mean, it goes right. You know, there were two great World War II films last year. I thought this was one, and Son of Saul was the other. Son of Saul, technically, yes, a Holocaust film, but also you know the Holocaust being. A, the crucial part of World War II. So I, I would put them both together. Um, but this is essentially the story of um, m- m- a confused identity, or um, I don't even know how, how I'm going to put this without sort of giving, giving the game away. But it's how the, the question here is if someone believes that you uh, are dead, how do, and you can present yourself to them as someone else to well that's even getting confusing um what if somebody thought what if somebody what if you could pretend to be the person you really are without the other person knowing that you are the person that you are does that make sense no no okay it sounds really interesting well anyway uh you didn't see phoenix phoenix is good it's, I, I i i didn't see phoenix it's a cool your pithy description of it makes me Realize just how much I missed. Yeah. Well. Anyway, I I, I think Mark has uh, Mark has permanently left the room. So, I think I, I I think I broke up the team. Well. Anyway, the uh, and then a lot, it's okay. It's okay. It's just one of those days. Mark is jet lagged. Mark was in New York. Oh, it's it's like guy. it's like seven a.m. or something in New York. Well, here's uh, you know what I'm going to nail a couple here real quickly just to uh, cap things off. One is the winter, which is a a very strange but fascinating Greek film that plays a little bit like Pan's Labyrinth, which is the idea in theory. Um, a, a really freaky, phantasmagorical exercise in special effects and uh, and creature effects. Um, this is from IndiePix Films, and it's one of the most impressive IndiePix Films releases I've seen in a long time. Really, really just dazzling. Oh, there he is. He's back. Oh, Mark is coming back to help Wade sign off. <laughs> I forgot a Prince movie. Yes. Uh, he also uh, did the song score to Spike Lee's Girl 6, most of which was previously released material, but not all. Oh, that's a good one. That is a good one. Spike has a whole one. bunch of movies that you folks out there need to revisit. Oh, uh, an entire episode on Spike is called... Oh, um, right. Mar- yeah. Mark is back now, and... Um, we're going to we're gonna try to start to wrap this up a little bit. Uh, wait, wait that, that's not promising. We're going to try to start to wrap this up. In a uh, moment. We're going to wrap this up. <laughs> we're going to try to start to wrap this up. Well, you know, just, a, just a, The Jungle Book uh, is a shameless animated... Rip off, rip off next. So, so this yeah, is a shameless... Now this, the spirit of the show. Yeah. <laughs> this is sort of shameless. Cynodyme has taken three, uh, basically four fairy ta- anim- short animated fairy tale uh, things. They're about 50 minutes apiece. 
And these are just really kind of cheesy Disney fairy tale ripoff shorts. And they've been to Patty. Yeah, to Patty. Uh, they've, they've, they've thrown them all together in, in, uh, under the Jungle Book to basically take advantage of the fact that the Jungle Book is wiping it up at the uh, box office right now. So you get, you get Alice, uh, Alice in Wonderland, Beauty and the Beast, Snow White, and the Jungle Book, not the Disney versions, but someone else's animated version because it's all in the public domain. The, the lesson, children, is never let your books fall into the public domain. <laughs> well, crappy, I, crappy things will happen to you. I don't know how you help it. Sometimes. Uh, so, all right, Mark, uh, that's it for us this week. Uh, get some sleep. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, but should we thank our special guest? We should. Well, let's thank our special guest, uh, once Oslo. We, once we remember his name, we will thank our special Oslo, guest. Oslo Hammerschmidt. What was it? Oswald. Or special guest. Uh, Oslo Welsh. Oslo Welsh. And I am a lunch bucket sort of a critic. A lunch bucket sort of a critic. All right. There it is. And uh, send your emails. You know what? We, we, we didn't get to our Vox box. Okay. We didn't get to the Vox box oh. because Oslo Welsh. Yes. Uh, we, we will next week. I like how planned out the show is. Well. <laughs> we signed off. And now we're going back. It's. It's a delirious narrative structure. It's very sophisticated in that respect. It's kind of a Mickey One sort of a film criticism show. See, you would think considering my entire career has been producing television, <laughs> which is nothing but the ordered chaos of like live TV, writing and producing, ordering, rundowns, right? Well... That really, this is the one part of my life where I don't care what happens. Well, you know what? We, we, we are going to be back very soon. So we're, we'll, we'll knock another show out over the weekend, and we'll, uh, we'll be back with the Vox Box end. Well, how about if we do two Vox Boxes? Uh, inside joke. <laughs>